Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadaf. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. Numbers 13.10 And they came to the valley of Ephraim, where he cut down of the land a single cluster of carried it You may be saying to yourself, that verse sounds very unexciting. There's not a lot of action or value in that very word, exciting. What that verse does, it describes a very particular reality in the life of From that reality, Perceptions and through perceptions behavior two very distinct and separate destinies. Our perception of reality thus becomes more important than reality itself. Why? The human eye is a very unique thing. We all see the same thing, but our perception is a function of books we've read, our family, people we know, ideology, our church, and everything that we see goes through a filter. The end result is our perception of reality, and we act on that perception. The question then becomes, what filter are we all using? And the perception principle becomes installing the appropriate filter so the way we see reality is always God-centered. This verse comes from a narrative in Numbers where we find the Israelites, and they're literally on the border between many things, between the past and the future, between a promise and fulfillment, between God and Pharaoh. And where they place their perception is what determines whether they move forward or whether they fall back. So the question we ought to ask ourselves today is, what filter are we using? And is God filtering everything we experience in our reality? The first point. Liberation, preparation, and occupation. This is the perception of circumstance. Again, liberation, preparation, and occupation. Now, occupation here has dual meanings. One, as a job that you do, and two, the act of occupying. So let's recap. In Genesis... God finds Abraham. He forms a covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to make you the father of a multitude of people, and I'm going to give you a promised land. And that promise is valid because God made it. We subsequently find Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, in Egypt. 
and they are under the oppressive regime of the Egyptians. So what does God do? He liberates his people, and they subsequently exodus from Egypt. God then takes them to Mount Sinai and gives them the Mosaic Law. Why? Because in order to get their promise, they have to get rid of all the Egyptian stuff they were used to. They were prepared by giving the law. They were not to follow the same rules they had learned during their tenure in Egypt. Part three, occupation is the promised land, Canaan. And our theme verse finds the Israelites literally on the, in the wilderness of Paran at the border. They can look out every morning and see what God wants them to have. And they can turn around and look all the way back and see where they came from. Now, God does this entire process because his desire isn't to condemn anyone. His desire is to give us all a more abundant life. And this threefold process is your continual movement towards the inheritance in the promised land. But here's the thing. If your perception is not using a filter of God, and you get caught up in each stage and the minutia of what God is trying to do, you won't perceive liberation, preparation, occupation. You may perceive something else. What would slavery have looked like for an Israelite in Egypt? It would have been bondage, yes, but they would have gotten up around the same time. They would know who their overseer was. They would know at what times each day they'd get their meals. They would know how many bricks they were to build. They would know what time they would go to bed every night. And from that, there's a degree of certainty and false security in bondage they would have gotten comfortable with. And if you look at the comfortableness of the situation, when God comes to liberate you, you may tell God no. And as a result, you don't perceive a liberation, you perceive a separation, as in, I want to stay in my comfort zone, why are you moving me? Preparation occurred in the wilderness at Mount Sinai in giving the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. Again, why? In order to fulfill the promise, you have to begin acting more godlike and less Pharaoh-like. What the law means is that you ought to act as if you are a child of God not a child of Pharaoh, which means the law now became more accountability, more responsibility. You can't walk by someone in the street and simply, you know, flip them the bird and walk away. No, you have to be nice to those who shun you. You have to look out for those in society who don't have as much as you do. But again, if you take the perception away from God, now that preparation looks like condemnation, as in this is too much, too many rules and regulations, I can't do this. Then there's occupation. 
God sets the promise in front of them and says, go take it. But they see, the Israelites see who's living in the lands, and they say it's too much for us to handle. And as a result, occupation now becomes trepidation or fear, as in, this is too much. Someone else has to do it. This is too much work for me to do. I'll give you an example. At the end of 2013, I was doing very well in my job in emergency medicine. I was in a position of authority. They paid me a fair amount of money, and I made my own schedule. And out of the blue, one day, after a night shift, my director said, we have to let you go. And I said, this is a shock to me. I don't get it. He said, there is a certain interpersonal conflict you have with someone that's been going on for an extended period of time. And as of right now, it's re reached a point where the formula of you and that person cannot work at this hospital, so you have to leave. So I was confused and distraught. I said, if there was a problem for so long, why am I hearing about this now? And the more I fought against the director, the more I realized that a decision had already been made which I was not meant to rebel against. People said I should sue. People said I should file a civil lawsuit. They said, it's because of your race. Yeah, it's because you, you're bald. Yeah, you have a beard. Da, 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 da. And it reached the point where I had a meeting with my director, the company's vice president, and the CEO. And it seemed as if every valid and rational explanation I had, they had an even better response to. And I was fighting against a wall. And I just couldn't figure it out. I was angry, I was bitter, and I was frustrated. Because I knew in my heart of hearts I did nothing wrong. I went to work, was very pleasant to people, then went home. Very simple, didn't bother anybody. But then I began thinking. And I looked back and I said, if God is sovereign, then everything happens for a reason. Because if everything doesn't, then you tacitly admit God is not sovereign. And I looked back and I said, has God ever steered me wrong? No. So what is he trying to tell me in this whole situation? Maybe I should stop thinking about my temporary setback and think in the grand scheme of things, allow the whole to interpret the part and tell me what am I supposed to learn? And after a long time of thinking, I realized I was living the American capitalistic dream. And as a result of that, my entire life revolved around work. My God was money and accomplishment. That was my idol. And then I realized that I couldn't serve that idol and serve God. So someone had to liberate me 
from my circumstance. But had I kept the focus on me, I would view it as a separation, as in God, why are you taking all this money away? Why are you taking my title away? And it just so happens that I was let go on a Friday. Two weeks later, I began seminary. Had I not been liberated, I would have not been able to prepare myself for my new occupation, which is why I'm standing here before you right now. I was a slave to something, but wasn't even aware I was a slave to it because that's all I knew. It took God to free me from that bondage so I could see I was in bondage. And most people won't realize this because if you're doing well, you're not selling drugs, you're not prostituting yourself, you're not murdering people, you're actually living the American dream which you're told is the right thing. But in that dream, you can substitute the end of all of your efforts for something that is not God. You can only see, you can only see the oppressive nature of oppressors once you're out of Egypt. You can't see the system from the bottom up. Someone has to take you out and then show you. Because freedom is a state of mind, not a circumstance. The most optimistic book in the Bible by some scholars is the book of Philippians. Who wrote Philippians? Paul. Where was Paul when he wrote that book? In jail, in chains. In chains. Which means the circumstance did not define Paul's perspective. God did. And whom Christ has set free, there we go. Now, this is a model for our entire life because our entire Christian walk involves initially being set free by God, being prepared in our day-to-day -day lives to occupy the eternal promise with Christ on our passing. But in that grand walk, there are going to be micro-iterations of this process. My process took about two or three months. Some people's process may take a decade. Some people, it may be two or three years. The point isn't to focus on how long it's going to take. The point is to realize what God is trying to do and not fight. Because look what happened in the Bible as we're about to learn. God's plan was to take them from Egypt to Sinai, promised land. Boom, boom, boom. Less than a couple of months, direct routes. But the people rebelled against God. And as a result, what should have taken a couple of months took 40 plus years. And God waited until everyone who was raised in Egypt and was enslaved to the Egyptian ideology to die before the next generation moved on. So keep this in mind. You cannot stop God's plan. So if you resist his plan, he can find someone else. And here's the question we continually ask ourselves when we go home today. 
What things in our life are we telling God, I do not want to be liberated. Instead, I refuse to be a slave. Numbers 13, 1 to 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. Interesting thing here. If you read Deuteronomy 1, 21 to 23, the people actually asked God to go and spy out the land after he promised it to them, which gives you an insight into their perspective. Because God said, I have made you a promise. This is yours. Go and take it. The people said, can we check it out first? Point number two. Seeing is ordinary. Vision is extraordinary. The sight perspective. Again, seeing is ordinary. Vision is extraordinary. Numbers 13, 8 and 16. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, but Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. The Hebrew root of called is kara, Q-A-R-A, which means to pronounce or call forth. Moses, being a man of God, not only saw Hosea, but had a vision of something greater in that man. Hosea simply means run-of-the-mill salvation, as in being saved to go from one thing or the other. There are many things that could technically save you that are not God. But Joshua means the Lord saves. The difference is who is doing the saving. Moses, being a man of vision, could now go beyond what reality told him. Everyone else would have seen a guy called Hosea, but Moses instead saw and had a vision of something different. And as a result, the way he interacted with reality changed. He began calling Joshua by his proper name. And here's the thing. We're reading this and, and listening to the word Joshua. But in Hebrew, whenever he would have said Joshua, guess what everyone heard? The Lord saves. And in that calling, there was ingrained in Joshua a new identity that he could not refute. Vision changes how you approach reality because reality is not defined by what you see. Consider this point. God made the entire universe out of nothing. Our reality is something. So if he made everything out of nothing, imagine what he can do with, with little something that you do have. Even if you do have nothing, what did he make out of nothing? Everything. So if you lack everything, he can still work with that as well. Numbers 13, 17, 20. Moses sends out the spies and tells them, See what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? 
How was the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruits of the land. Notice this task did not require anyone's opinion. Now our theme verse, Numbers 13, 23. This is the reality. They came to the valley of Eshol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men. So not only was this reality good, it was marvelous, to the point where one cluster of grapes had to be carried on a pole between two grown men. Numbers 13, 26, and 27, again, reality. The spies then report to the people of what they saw. They said, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now here's the perception, verse 28, 29. Nevertheless, whenever you see that word in the Bible, get, be very, very cautious. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Perception number two. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Same reality, same cluster of grapes. Everyone could see two grown men carrying a massive cluster of grapes between them. The reality remained the same. Perception number one says we should be afraid, we are unworthy, we are nothing. Perception number two said, says Surely we should go and overcome it. Now here's the distinction. There were only 12 spies were sent out. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, had the vision to see not only the reality, but what God was trying to do was indeed good. So 12 spies saw but only two had the vision of what God was trying to do was good. Now, two out of 12 are pretty poor odds. But here's the thing. Throughout the course of the entire Bible, standing for God is always a minority opinion. When David stood against Goliath, it was one David versus one Goliath. There was an entire Israelite army of fearful men behind David. When Elijah stood atop Mount Carmel, it was he alone for God and 850 prophets of false deities. When Jesus came, he had 12 apostles, about 75 disciples, and a loose band of people who kind of popped in and popped out. Against him was the entire nation of Israel. And the point is that when it comes to God, you ought to never allow majority opinion to sway your vision. Because if you do, these are some of the excuses that you will hear, which are exactly the excuses that people made. One, I am unable. 
Two, I am unworthy. Three, the time just isn't right. Four, this is too much work. Five, I'm waiting on God. Six, this is a job for someone else. Seven, it's just too hard. Imagine telling God, who made the universe out of nothing, this is just too hard. Verse 31 to 33. The other spies who went with Caleb and Joshua said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. Watch this now. They saw and developed an opinion. Now watch what they do. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Chapter 14, 1-4. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And the sons of Israel grumbled, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Here's the most lethal danger of perception. The spies who were fearful allowed their perception to pollute everyone else's. There were only 12 people who actually went into the land and went up and down. Ten of them basically were fearful and then said, we should now make everyone think just like us. As a result, a promise now becomes a threat. And this is how this correlates to today which is false doctrine. As in, everyone has access to the same eternal word of God. But if you see something or hear something you don't like, you then try to convince other people that your perverse perception is what reality often is. And people will jump on that bandwagon because if they too hear or see something which makes them uncomfortable, they'll say, let us appoint a leader so we can revel in our false doctrine. Does that sound familiar? And where do such groups always go? Back to Egypt. In other words, back to the old way of doing things, back to sin, and ultimately to death. In other words, a common promise paralyzed the people with fear, but a common fear now mobilized them into action. And Numbers 14, 12 subsequently will tell us how God deals with the people who acted faithless and tried to persuade others to think the same way they did. He sent a plague upon them, the same plague he sent on the Egyptians which means in God's vision, he treats the allegedly faithful who act faithless the same way as sinners. Point number three, my favorite point. When God starts a conflict, 
He always finishes it. This is the God perspective. When God starts a conflict, he always finishes it. And whatever happens in our life, have you ever considered what God is thinking when things happen? God tells the people, this is a land to which I am promising you. Go and take it. And the people then turn around and tell him, the people who live there, they're too big and they are too strong. It's too much for us. How do you think an all-powerful, almighty God must feel when you tell God the things that he made in the first place is too much for you to handle? Is that not one of the biggest insults to God? And it's also a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Because then what that tells God is that you are afraid more than something else, more than him. My brother and I, growing up, used to be very, very big wrestling fans. And recently, one of our favorite wrestlers is a guy called The Rock. He has swagger. He has charisma. He's just a fun guy to watch, even though you know it's scripted. But whenever you hear The Rock talk, you real, he has a, a couple of uh, catchy lines, he says. So whenever his opponents will start running their lip and I'm going to do this and that, he famously will say, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter how big they are. It doesn't matter how many of them are. It just doesn't matter. And he has one simple gesture. Just bring it. Just bring it. Now, this is a man who doesn't know God, I'm assuming, doesn't read his Bible. All he has is some muscles and some wrestling skill. And he can tell someone else, it doesn't matter what you think, just bring it. We have an almighty God behind us. So why ought we not to act the same way? It doesn't matter. It simply doesn't matter what life throws at us. Because here's the thing, the worst thing that can happen to us is what? Death. Who already conquered death? Jesus Christ. So what ought we to fear? Because in that death is not an end, it's a transition to what? A promise. It doesn't matter, just bring it. Now here's the beauty of this entire story in Numbers. The people despised the free gifts that God was trying to give them. And that is perfectly symbolized in the cross. For when Jesus came, the people at the time rejected God's invitation for a more abundant life. And in that rejection, they wanted to go back to the way things were, and they killed the man who was sent to liberate them. Jesus came to liberate them, to prepare them, and to give them the strength to occupy a more abundant life. He wanted to set them free, but the people said, we'd rather stay where we are. You're trying to separate us from what we know. 
the people saw a man called Jesus Christ, but they lacked the vision to see it was God incarnate. They failed to realize that Jesus was the answer to the fight God had already started in Genesis 3.15, where he said, the seed of the woman, woman will crush the serpent. And in our motion, going from Egypt to the promised land, it is one motion. It is simultaneously turning away from the way things used to be, turning away from sin and toward God. You can't go into the promised land in reverse. It has to be a complete 180 because the stuff that you dealt with before, can, you cannot deal with while you're in the promised land. The rebels who gave a bad report and wanted to return to Egypt desired to save their own lives. But Luke 9.24 tells us that anyone who wishes to follow Christ ought to be willing to give up his life. Because as Dietrich Bonhoeffer always says, if our salvation costs the living God the life of his son, never delude yourself into thinking that salvation is going to be cheap. It's, very, very, it's going to be very, very costly. So here's the question I have for everyone here today. What is occupying your promise? If you are on the verge between a promise and fulfillment, what occupies the more abundant life that you so seek? And maybe it's not someone or something else. Maybe when you cross that line and walk into Canaan, the thing that's occupying your promise is you. Perhaps it's perverse thinking, false doctrine, or some other deviation from God has told us. But whenever we look back, we ever not to look back at the way things were in Egypt. We ought to look back on what God has done for all of us. He was tortured, and he suffered, and died on a cross for all of our sakes. God has never ever stopped fighting for anyone. So the question we should all ask ourselves is, is God worth a good fight? God bless you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Dr. Sadafa. For more valuable information and resources, please visit chesadafa.com.